Well, as we continue our book study in 1 Thessalonians, we come to chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, where Paul begins a brief section on relationships in the church. Uh, Ephesians 5, verses 12 to 13, the scripture says, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Paul's been answering a series of issues or questions that may have been given to him by this church at Thessalonica, such as, well, what about sexual purity? He did answer that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. How about relationships as far as loving the brothers? Chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Well, how about those who are die before the literal second coming of Christ? Yes, that in the first part of chapter 5. Well, what about dates and times and the coming of the Lord? He answers that in the middle part of chapter 5. And now we come to the section on relationships. And he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect. Really, the word here is to recognize. To recognize. But in the context of the passage, it's been translated in the New International Version as to respect. To recognize and respect, we could say. To, to, to respect and recognize those who work hard among you. Verse 13, hold them in highest regard and love because of their work, but, but recognize them. Recognize them. Show, show a sense of respect. Um, the gentleman on the left is Joshua Chamberlain from Maine, who became the governor of Maine after the war between the states. The man on the right is John B. Gordon. And on April the 9th, 1865, General Lee surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox. And as they worked out the terms of surrender, uh, three days later on April the 12th, the Confederate forces were to lay down their banners, their war standards, and their arms uh, in front of the conquering Union Army. The man who was supposed to represent the Confederate States was John B. Gordon. The man who was to receive the terms of surrender was Joshua Chamberlain, the, the Union hero of the Battle of Gettysburg. Well, something happened as... Chamberlain had all of his men, the Union Army, line up on both sides of a road. And as the muffled drum beat, the Confederate troops came over the brow of the hill, led by Gordon on a horse. And it was, a, of course, a horrific day for the Confederates. Men were weeping. The Union forces had been told by Chamberlain to not be celebratory. And as they came over the brow of the hill and Gordon came in their midst, his head was down and and, and Chamberlain did something that many people said cost him the presidency. He ordered his troops to salute them with their rifles, which at that point they brought like this, which was a sign of respect and recognition. And the story goes, as soon as he said that, John Gordon sat up straight, saluted Chamberlain with his um, sword and pointed straight down as a sign of honor. And all the Confederate troops went to salute arms as they walked by. It was, it was a, an incredible moment of recognition by both armies of respect. Recognition. Recognition. And, and there's a picture of it here as they go through. Another type of recognition. Some of us went to the Citadel. And the first week you go to the Citadel is called Hell Week. And you have people that scream at you and tell you to get your chin in and call you loser and other names that should not really be said. But they, they do it. And, but it doesn't end at Hell Week. It continues the whole year. 
But there is a day in late April, early May called Recognition Day when you're not called by your last name any longer. You, when I was there, we would go on a massive run and they would have a wrestling match that lasted three hours. First, the freshmen wrestled the sophomores, then the juniors, then the seniors. And after each wrestling match, and uh, you would line up and they would come by and these upperclassmen would shake your hand and say, you can call me John and I'll call you. It was, it was a recognition ceremony. It's a wonderful way to spend your first year of college. Um, <laughs> but that's the Citadel. But it, the, the day of recognition. It's a day when you are recognized and, and respected for finishing the fourth class year. That's the same concept that we have here, to, to recognize with respect those elders and pastors who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live at peace with everyone. Now, there's an adage that if you've been in the military, you've heard this statement. We salute oftentimes the uniform, but not the man. If you've been in the military, there are sometimes there are people that are above you in rank that you salute that in normal life you would not necessarily respect. So you salute the uniform and not the man. Listen to me. You can never say that to be true about leaders in the church. You don't just salute the position. You salute the person as well. A spiritual leader must be a person of observable godliness. Let me tell you, I've been preaching through First Thessalonians, and we just happened to come to this text, and we happen to have an ordination of some deacons and elders today. It wasn't planned that way from the beginning of time or from last, you know, December. But you, you salute the man. You salute someone who, in a, they're fallen, they're sinful, but you salute someone who has an observable standard of godness. Let me show you a couple, a couple of verses. Hebrews 13, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Then imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Then imitate their faith. Or 1 Timothy chapter 4. Be diligent in these matters so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers with little phrases. So that everyone may see your progress. When you're around a a pastor, an elder, an overseer, if you're around someone who's in spiritual leadership, you, you should sense that they are struggling with knowing Christ. That they're, they're in the Word. If you ask them, well, what, are you, what are you reading? They can tell you something I'm reading. Or, or, or you, you can talk to them about that. It's got to be observable. And as you walk with them and as you spend time with them, you see that Christ is changing their lives. So you don't just salute the uniform. You do salute the man. Hold them in highest regard, not because of their position, but in love. Because of their work. You see, it's got to be an observable godliness. In fact, in the book of Titus, there's a brief section on qualifications for elders and, and leaders. And, uh, and, and men are called to this position and men should aspire to be an elder. Should aspire to live this way. We should all aspire to live this way. But he says in chapter 1, he says that he says an elder must be blameless. And then I think he defines blameless. In this way, he must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, which means he has a passionate love for his bride. 
And a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient and unruly. He governs his home well. He says, since an elder is, is entrusted with, with God's work as a steward, he must be, he uses the word again, blameless. And then he defines blameless. Doesn't mean perfect, thankfully. Nobody's perfect. But he says there's certain qualities about, about, about a leader. He says he's not, he's not overbearing or arrogant. He's teachable. He, he's not quick-tempered. Always ready to fight and have his way. He's a peacemaker, in other words. He, 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 he longs for people to understand that the cross brings peace into our lives. He's not given to drunkenness. In fact, we know from Ephesians 5, Paul says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the way I understand that is that, that instead of being drunk, he's filled with the Spirit. Only one thing controls him ultimately, and that is the reality of Christ. He said he's, he's not violent, which means he's not a bully. <laughs> he doesn't use his position to berate and placate and demand his way. He does not pursue dishonest gain. He's a man of integrity. Blameless. Conversely, conversely, he must be a man who's hospitable. Hospitable. He loves people. Number two, he's a lover of the good. And that's a very interesting phrase. It means that he, he affirms and embraces the beauty of what God has done in creation, I think, and what he's doing in, in his church. He's, he's a lover of the good. He, he's a man who, who, who is self-controlled. He's upright, which, which means that he pursues justice. I think of Micah 6, 8, where, where the Old Testament prophet says that the Lord has shown you you should love, pursue justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. He's upright. He's godly. He's set apart for the purposes of God. He's a man of brokenness and repentance. And he's disciplined. He's disciplined. And he says this, regarding the teaching, regarding the word, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. He loves the word of God so that he can encourage the brothers and refute those who are in error. And see, what, what, what really what should be true of God's people, this is a call to God's people, what should be true of God's people must be true of elders and, 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 and pastors. It must be true. The, the way I've kind of broken it down, there's, as I pray through these things, see, instead of being overbearing, you're hospitable. You're not arrogant. You receive people. Instead of being quick-tempered, you love what is good. And instead of being a drunkard, you're self-controlled. See? See how that corresponds? Just my mind. Instead of being a bully, you're upright. You pursue justice for all people. You don't play favorites. Instead of pursuing dishonest gain, you're holy. And all things, I think the word discipline describes them. When you look at these things, these are not Herculean efforts, but they're the statement of a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, Hercules in Greek mythology was a guy who had to do these 
incredible task to appease the gods. And so one of his tasks is, I think the fifth task of 12 was he had to clean out the stables. And so the gods assigned him to clean out the stables, stables inhabited by over a thousand bulls and hadn't been cleaned out in 30 years. He had to do it in one day. That's a tall order. So what Hercules did, Hercules can do this kind of stuff. He diverted two rivers and he washed out the stables and he washed the bulls and they were totally clean within hours. Those are called the Aegean stables. And so when you hear somebody has an Aegean task, it means a task that cannot be done. This is not an Aegean task. This is, this is, this is the, the lifestyle of a person who is filled with the Spirit and who's seeking Jesus Christ. This is who leaders should be. This is who we're called to be. This is the statement about men who understand that there's healing and empowerment in the presence of the, of the living Christ. I'm just reading this week, Matthew, Matthew 15, verse 30. And just kind of struck me. Verse 30 and 31, listen. Great crowds came to Jesus, bringing the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled made well and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. And I, I just kind of circled that and said, you know, there's healing in the presence of Jesus. That the most important thing in my life, in my brokenness, in my disobedience, in my half-heartedness, is to get myself in the presence of Jesus. Because there's empowering, healing, mercy, life-sustaining energy in the presence of Jesus. Hasn't changed. And when you go to Titus, these, these requirements for leaders, you, just in, in, in the book of Titus, it talks about the glory of the cross. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 to 3 says this, You've received a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and he has at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Behold the healing and the power of Christ. And he says in, in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, the grace of God has appeared to all men. It's brought salvation, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. There's healing in the presence of Jesus. Someone who is a leader in the church, understands that we live in a broken, fractured world and that the way people are made whole in a fallen world, not totally healed, is to get in the presence of Jesus. The way marriages that are difficult right now is for both people to get in the presence of Jesus. Parenting, get in the presence of Jesus. That's what we're about. And our lives should speak of that reality. And this is, so number one, it's observable godliness. Number two is they're over you in the Lord. The word over you means to be protector, a guardian, one who gives aid. The world we live in is hyper-independent, especially in America. 
But the scripture teaches rich relational lines of authority. See, the Bible says these, these leaders are over you in the Lord. When it comes to spiritual formation and life application, they're over you. They don't tell you where to live. They don't tell you what to major in. That's, 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 but, but they take scripture and they make application to your life. That's, that's what leaders do in the church. They're, they're over you in the Lord. There's a quote here, the bulletin from a man named Augustine. He died in 430. That's what Augustine says as he prayed about being a pastor. He says, the honor of this world passes away and grasping at high office passes as well. I do not intend to spend a puffed up existence in ecclesiastical positions. My thoughts are on the day when I must render my account for the sheep committed to me by the prince of shepherds. Understand my fear, for I fear deeply. Augustine says, you know, I am responsible for instructing and teaching and praying for and guarding and guiding people under my charge. And I fear, I fear. And whoever takes the office of pastor or elder or leader or care group leader should fear because we are responsible. Listen to me. I believe this with all my heart. I, I wish I'd said this at least once every other week. Much pain could be avoided if we placed ourselves in positions where we hear from godly people who could speak into our life on a personal basis. I was just praying yesterday about the number of people that I've seen grow up, including my daughter, who've been married this summer. Grown up here. I've seen them from the womb. And I promise you that the struggles that they will hit, the walls they will hit, have been hit by everybody in here who's been married more than three months. If, if, if you want to know how to handle teenage children, sit down with somebody whose teenage children have grown up. If you want to hand, know how to handle the terrible twos and threes, and they are terrible, talk to older men and women. See, there, there's, a, there's a passage in scriptures in Titus, older women teach younger women, older men teach younger men. We don't, why have we been blind to that? Every older woman should say, Lord, I want to teach younger women. I want to live in such a way that I can teach younger women. I want to love my husband and children, children in such a way that I can teach younger women to, 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 to walk in a way they should walk. Maybe, maybe to avoid some of the stuff I stepped into. Same with men. Much pain, much pain. Much financial mess could be avoided. If you sat down with older people who have been wise stewards of their money and said, you know, how do you do it? Do, do you listen to the credit card or us crowd? Or to listen to the voice of the Spirit and the Word of God. How, how do you, they'll tell you. Much, much pain. See, the church is given for our growth and edification. And yet we slip in, we slip out. There's no lines of authority, no communication. And, and, and people come. People come for counseling oftentimes. 
when their kid has just been arrested for the fifth time for heroin possession. Not the first time they go off the rails when they're 12 and do something stupid. Or they come in for marriage counseling when, when really they, they, they're ready to throw in the towel and they've been to see every secular counselor in America and they finally say, well, maybe we should go see a pastor. Go see a pastor first. First. Uh, much pain. Much pain. Listen to this abiding principle from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5 says this. Young men, in the same way be submissive, you see, submissive to those who are older. It can be translated to the elders. We don't know if it's just talking about older men or the elders, the body of elders. But All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that in due season he'll lift you up. See, what's the principle? The principle is, you know, submit. Ask for instruction. The principle, God opposes the proud, but, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, that in due time he'll lift you up. I've never read this but I heard R.C. Sproul say it, who's a great teacher, and I'm going to quote him, who quoted John Calvin. Sproul said, I heard him say this, he says, John Calvin, the great teacher, died in 1564, whose birthday was this week. 503 years ago he was born. John Calvin, the greatest teacher of the Reformation, I think, said no one is right more than 80% of the time. They just turn, you can just turn your neighbor and say, that puts you in the 40 percentile, pal. You know, think about it. I need people in my life who say, mm. I'm thankful for a godly wife who says, mm. who teaches me how to drive every day. <laughs> do your wives do that to you guys? Watch out! Beware! Oh no! Hey, it's, okay, so I'll, it's fine. Listen, all of us know people who will die with this on their tombstone. Oh, let's go back to that. I know people who named Jesus who lived that way. And they're dead wrong. They're always right. There's death in that. There's death in that. When I meet these people, I think, how in the world do they relate to their wives or their kids, for heaven's sake? This week, I didn't even think you get away from your kids. You can't get away from your kids. My son's in California. I can't get away from him. So we're FaceTiming this week. He says, Dad, man, Dad. What he said, I was listening to one of your sermons, and in this sermon, you recommended this movie, and I watched it. And Dad, it's a good movie, but it's not for kids. I said, Well, I think I said, um, This movie is for adults. And he said, No, you didn't. I said, Really? I said, Look at him. He said, No, you didn't. I said, Okay, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I said, I think I did maybe one service at least, 
I going to say that. But anyway, I, I meant to say that. It was in my notes. But, I mean, but, but you know, thanks be to God for, for people in your life who say, why? Well, I saw this. Do you invite that? Do you invite that in your life? Or will your tombstone say it was a burden? Man, it was a burden to always be right. But somebody had to be there. John Calvin, 80%. Nobody here is above 80%. I promise you. Um, Thirdly, they admonish you or warn you or entreat you or exhort you in the Lord. I just let me confess to you I have a wimp gene in my spirit in this regard I for years as a pastor I said you know I just don't like conflict man there's conversations I knew I need to have I wouldn't have and so I'd say to him I said well I just don't like conflict like that's an excuse who likes conflict seriously who among us likes conflict? If you like conflict, you need to get saved. Because God, God doesn't, didn't save you to be a conflictor. I should say, I'm not comfortable with, I don't like unbiblical conflict. Now that's, that's a biblical statement. When people curse and throw things and, 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 you know, and threaten and attack and punch people out. That's not biblical. But listen, conflict is part of life because we live in a fallen world and we're going to have disagreements. If you have any relationship that has any teeth, any depth to it, you will have conflict. You will. And so it says here that, that part of the, the, the leadership maxim is that they, they, are, they, they admonish you. That they, they warn you. Don't go there. Don't do this. What are you thinking? There's a passage in Proverbs 9 verse 8 that says, Do not re- rebuke. A scoffer, or he'll hate you. Rebuke or admonish a wise man, he'll love you. I got these verses. Well, Psalm. Must be after that. Yeah, Psalm 41, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it, yet my prayer is ever against the deeds of evil doers. Let, let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's all on my head. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Listen. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. You know? But 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 a Enemy just, oh, you're great, you're wonderful, wouldn't change a thing about you, you're fantastic, you're wonderful, you're kind. Do you have a friend like that? Verse 9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. See, the pleasantness of your friend springs from earnest counsel. Well, there's there's something called Peacemaker's Ministry. I want to see this little slap. It's it's called the slippery slope. On the far side is escape responses. We fly, we deny. 
suicide and extreme. On, on the other is attack responses. We murder in the extreme, but we assault and we litigate. In the middle, in the middle, the peacemaker, peacemaker model is we, we either overlook or we're reconciled. We negotiate. We go through mediation, arbitration, and accountability. Yeah, that's, in other words, you don't, you don't just attack people. You don't run. Running from people, running from issues, according to this, and I think this is true, is sin just like attacking people. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. See, part of spiritual leadership is admonish. Do you have people in your life who speak truth? Are you involved in the church enough so that people can observe your life? And just walk together. There was, uh, this past February, January, there was a fire in Honduras, in the prison. In a prison that housed 852 prisoners, a fire broke out. The fire department came to this huge conflagration, and they could not get in the prison because the prison guards could not be found, and they had the keys. Out of 852 prisoners, 356 perished because they couldn't get in. They couldn't unlock the doors to let the prisoners out to put out the fire because the guards were running around somewhere with keys in their pockets. I read that I thought, you know, who are the guards in the church? Leaders. Leaders. What is the key? Sound doctrine. The gospel of Christ. The glory of the triune God. You open doors for prisoners, for one another, with sound doctrine. The glory of the gospel. The wonder of the triune God. Ezekiel says, I gave you guardians, watchmen, who watched over you. So, so that, that's why Paul says, you know, hold them in highest love, and highest regard and love because of the work. And he says this, live at peace with each other. You see, when, when there's mutual concern and prayer and love, there's peace. When there's not, there's not. 